Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are with us this morning as we uh, come and gather for worship, as we sing to our Lord and come to his word. And uh, if you are uh, maybe joining us for the first Sunday or, or you are relatively new with us, you are joining us at the very end of a sermon series. So we started this sermon series in 1 Samuel back in January um, and have been going through it uh, chapter by chapter uh, through uh, from January. We took a little break, you remember, so it, it hasn't been that long, but, um, but uh, you know, 25-ish sort of sermons that we began back then. We now come to the end of it this morning with 1 Samuel chapter 31, 1 Samuel 31. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. The passage is also going to be projected on the screens in front of you in just a moment. Now, 1 Samuel, uh, many of you know, uh, has a sequel. It's called 2 Samuel. <laughs> uh, and then it's followed by 1 and 2 Kings. And these obviously are telling the story, the continuing story of the king, right? 1 Samuel is the, the story, the origin story, if you will, of the king of Israel. And it focuses our attention on King Saul, the first king of Israel. And this story continues into 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and so on. Um, now, next week, we're not going to start, jump into the sequel. We're not going to jump into 2 Samuel. Maybe we'll do that in years uh, down the road. But, but instead, next week, when we uh, are done with 1 Samuel, we're going to jump into Ruth. So we're going to spend four weeks in the gospel, or not the gospel. <laughs> uh, though, well, that's another discussion. <laughs> we're going to spend four weeks in Ruth, and then we're going to uh, be in Advent and during Advent, we're going to look at how Jesus is the better David. So really, 2020 is the year of David at CTK. First Samuel, Psalms, Ruth, Jesus is better. So, uh, so that's where we're going for the rest of the year, for those of you who like to plan. Um, and that's what you can expect for next week, Ruth 1. But before we get there, uh, we have one last chapter to look at. And this is actually quite a sad chapter in the life of Saul. It's a sad chapter in the life of God's people. Let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. And his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshon. 
But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge as we come to your word that you are a faithful God, that you have been faithful to preserve for us your word. You have been faithful to reveal it to us. You have been faithful in redeeming your people. And so we ask that you would be faithful again this morning, that you would be faithful so that the words of my mouth would honor you, that you would be faithful so that the meditations of our hearts would please you. God, be faithful to your people so that we would know what it means to follow you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I imagine that many of you remember, and probably a lot of you have seen the epic movie Braveheart. Uh, It is from a number of years ago, but I'm sure some of you have gone back and watched it, or maybe you saw it when it first came out. This story of William Wallace, who is on a quest to free Scotland from the tyranny of the English king. Now, I know at the outset that uh, this movie, if you've gone and done any research about the historical accounts that are depicted there, it takes um, quite a number of liberties, historical liberties in the telling of the story. It is based on, <laughs> based on a true story, but regardless, it's still a fun movie. It's, it's a great story, right? Wallace is leading this uprising against the English king, and as he does so, he calls the Scottish lords to join with the fight, And one of these lords is Robert the Bruce. And Robert the Bruce has offered his sword to fight alongside with Wallace. And Robert has great promise. He has great promise. Robert the Bruce is handsome. He's a strong leader. His hereditary title means that he is the rightful king of Scotland. And so when he pledges his sword, his loyalty to Wallace, and he agrees to fight, you think, as an observer of the movie, you think nothing will stop them. Wallace with his courage and strength, the Bruce with his leadership and loyalty, surely they will defeat the British. And so out they go to the Battle of Falkirk. And Wallace, in the scene before the battle, he's standing on the front line with his men, His face is painted, his helmet is on, he's got sword in hand, he's ready to battle. And as they look around, they see all his men, but the Bruce is not there. And so Wallace says, he will come. He assures his men, he will come. But when the battle begins, Robert isn't standing with Wallace And the men of Scotland, Robert the Bruce, is standing with the king of England. Robert the Bruce has betrayed Wallace. And now after the battle, after the Scottish have been decimated, after the army has been defeated, Robert, filled with remorse, overwhelmed by grief, knowing that he has turned his back on his promise, he walks amongst the dead. He walks amongst his his countrymen who have given their lives in the battle. The scene is dark. The sun is going down. There are bodies on the ground. You can hear the moaning of those who are grasping to their last breath. And Robert is filthy from his riding. He is exhausted. 
by his failure. He had so much promise. Strong and handsome. Called to lead and people followed. But when the time came to lead in this battle, when he promised he would fight, he failed. And Robert's failure ultimately wasn't on the battlefield. Ultimately, his failure was a failure of character. A failure of character that actually led not just to his own remorse, to his own turning his back on his men, but to the death of many. He had so much promise. You know, the same could be said of King Saul. King Saul, this one who was tall and handsome, this one who was strong and commanding, he was called to lead, and when it came time to lead, he failed. Because he failed in following the Lord. And in failing to follow after the Lord, he actually failed to lead his people. And that's what much of 1 Samuel has been about, isn't it? Saul's failure to lead. We've seen it since 1 Samuel chapter 15. We've seen the failure of the king again and again and again. Right? We've observed the consequences of Saul's failure to obey the Lord. He turned from God. He ignored his word. He sought to manipulate the Lord and attempted to murder his successor. Again and again and again, we see how he failed to follow the Lord. And this failure culminated in chapter 28. Right? We see how far he has come, how low he has stooped, that he would actually act as a pagan. He would turn his back on everything that he knew of the Lord, and he would act as a pagan and seek out a medium to try to discern God's will. Ultimately, Saul's failure, ultimately Saul's failure wasn't because he wasn't strong enough. And it wasn't because he wasn't smart enough or, or a good enough soldier or because he wasn't politically savvy enough. Ultimately, his failure was one of character. His failure was in his inability to follow the Lord. And this final failure results in, the, in his death. We see it in, depicted in verses 3 through 6. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded, wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. You see, even in his death, even by his very last action, Saul continued to fail in following the Lord because he took his own life. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say this, that as those who, who believe the word of God, who hold fast to the scriptures, who believe in God's grace and his mercy, we do not believe that suicide is the unforgivable sin. We stand in stark opposition to the teaching of Rome. We do not believe that this is the unforgivable sin, that God's grace and his mercy isn't strong enough to be gracious even for those who would take their own lives. No, we, we believe Romans 8, don't we? 
Do you remember at the end of Romans 8 what the Apostle Paul says? He lists all these things that could make us think. Maybe these things are too powerful for the love of God, right? Principalities and powers and things in heaven and things on earth and death itself. But what did Paul say? There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing. And for those who are trusting in Jesus, who are resting in his grace, even taking one's life, even that cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is not what God would have for his people. That is not what the Lord would have for his people because to take one's life, though it is not the unforgivable sin, it is a sin. It is to turn from the Lord's will for life and the cherishing of life. And so let me just say, if you have ever contemplated that, if you have ever, ever considered that, maybe even today there are some in here who have been thinking upon that. Do not keep that hidden away. Do not keep that hidden away, but expose it to the light. Do not allow the darkness of depression or the anxiety of despair to overwhelm you. Do not feel as though that sin, that temptation, that, that is too much. I cannot show that. No, instead bring it into the light. Share it with a pastor or a trusted friend or a counselor so that you would turn from it, so that you would cling to life. Saul turned away from God even in his final action. And the death of Saul came about. His failures brought about his own death, but his failure also was brought about the death of others. It brought negative consequences on others as well. We see it in the battle, right? Israel is routed. Verse 1, the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. In verse 7, we're told that Israel abandoned their cities and fled in fear from the Philistines. In verse 2, we're told that Saul's sons, Malkishua, Abinadab, and even Jonathan were killed. Saul's failing brought about negative consequences for himself as well as for the people. The army were routed, and what do the Philistines do? They rejoice. The Philistines, the enemies of God, they rejoice. You see what they did? They stripped Saul of his armor, and they cut off his head, and they sent word throughout the land that Saul was dead and Israel was defeated. And in verse 10, we're told that they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now, why'd they do this? Why put the armor of Saul in the temple to this God? Well, there's two things we need to remember. The first is that the king, the Lord's anointed, would have been understood as representing the Lord on earth. He was the Lord's representative to the people. So that's the first thing we need to remember. The second thing we need to remember is Ashtaroth is one of the Canaanite gods. And so by putting the armor of the Lord's anointed Saul in the temple of the Canaanite God, the Philistines were declaring that Yahweh, the Lord, wasn't strong enough to keep his king safe. They were declaring that the Philistine gods had won. 
That's why in verse 9, we're told that they carried good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They carried good news throughout the land that Israel had been defeated. Good news that their gods had won. Good news that not only had Saul's body been desecrated, but that the Lord had been defeated. You see, in doing this action, they were mocking the Lord. And so you can see why this is a sad passage, can't you? The Lord is mocked. Israel is defeated. Saul is dead. Now, I want us to put ourselves in David's shoes for a moment. David's not in our passage, but David has been a very prominent character throughout this book and will continue to be. And so I want you to think, how, how do you think David would respond when he heard the news of all that had happened? Surely he would have been sad that Israel had been defeated. He was probably going to be angry that the Lord is mocked. But when he hears of Saul's death, what, what do you think is going on in his heart then? Maybe a little bit happy? Maybe a little bit of relief? I mean, after all, Saul made David's life miserable, right? He sought David's life. He chased David from his home. And so it's not hard to imagine that maybe David was feeling just a little bit of relief at the news of Saul's death, right? Like, no problem can't be handled by a timely death. Like, maybe that's what he's thinking. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel, because in 2 Samuel chapter 1, so it's just the next page, we're going to project it in just a moment. In 2 Samuel, we actually have David's response. And we're told what David does when he gets the news of Saul's death, beginning in verse 17. We can project that. David lamented, with, his lament, with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel... Weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your, on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. So you see what David did when he got news of Saul's death? David lamented. He lamented. He lamented the, death, the defeat of the army. He lamented the death of Jonathan. He lamented the mocking of God. And he also lamented Saul. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Weep over him how the mighty have fallen. David laments and he calls Israel to lament. 
lament that the Lord has been mocked and the army has been defeated and the Lord's anointed is dead. Now, as they lament, what are the questions that would have been going through their minds? Well, you know what some of those questions are because we've read them in the different psalms of lament. When God's people lament, what do they say? They, they wonder and they ask and they think, how did it ever get so far? How did we come to this place? What has happened? Has God forgotten? Where is the Lord? What are we to make of this? And surely they would have been wondering those things as they sang this lament, as they were hearing David the anointed lament. What are we to make of this? Well, friends, even though the king has failed and the army has been defeated and the Lord's anointed is death, what dead, what we are to see is that the purposes of God endure. The purposes of God endure. And the reason why we can see this is from another passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 10. In 1 Chronicles 10, verses 13 through 14, the chronicler is giving us a parallel account of 1 Samuel 31. And there he says this, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So did you hear that? The Lord put him to death. You see, the Philistines thought they defeated Saul and Israel and the Lord, but they were just seeing as man sees. You see, as we have focused focused our attention on the details of Saul's demise, we have to zoom out, and when we do so, we see how this fits into the bigger picture that God is pulling together. And when we do this, we see Saul's death is not just a result of his failing to follow the Lord, but it is actually his failing His failing is a fulfilling of God's word. That's what chapter 28 told us, right? When the spirit of Samuel appeared, he said, The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Shall be with me means that they will die, that they will go to the place of the dead. And so Saul's death was in keeping with God's word. But the purpose of the Lord wasn't just to bring judgment upon Saul. It was also to hand the kingdom over to David. Right? That's what the end of 1 Chronicles said. The Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. That's what 1 Chronicles tells us. That's what chapter 28 told us. That though the Lord's anointed had died and Israel had been defeated, this was all part of God's plan to bring about David, the better king. And y'all, that's what's beautiful about this book. That's what's beautiful about 1 Samuel. Because though 1 Samuel is filled with failure, right? Failure of ungodly leadership with Hophni and Phinehas, right? That's how it began back in January, you remember? Ungodly leadership with Hophni and Phinehas. The failure of the people who rejected the prophetic leadership of Samuel. The the failure of Saul and his crumbling royal leadership again and again and again. The book is filled with failure and the kingdom of God endures. That despite all of that failure, the kingdom of God continues to move forward. And y'all, this can at times be hard to believe. 
right? Think about the average Israelite, right? The average Israelite, as they would have looked out on the field of battle, and they would have seen their brother's bodies strewn on the ground, and they would have heard of the king's death and of God being mocked, it would have been hard to believe that the kingdom of God was enduring, wouldn't it? I mean, in that moment, it would have looked like the kingdom of God had failed, right? You all feel that sometimes, don't you? You all wonder, where is the kingdom? When we look around at the world, division and discord, anger and immorality in every sphere of our culture, it's easy to think, where's the kingdom? And we don't even have to look outside to our world. We look into our own hearts at our own lives and we think of the thoughts that run through our minds and the selfishness that fills our hearts and those actions. We remember those actions that we regret and we wonder, where is the kingdom? Surely Israel was asking that question. And it may have even slipped into David's mind. And a thousand years after Saul, the anointed king of Israel, died, that same question would have been asked again. Because a thousand years after the Lord's anointed was killed on Gilboa, the anointed of the Lord was killed on Golgotha. Because when Jesus hung on the cross and the sky went dark, and he was buried in the tomb, surely those who crucified him would have thought that they had won, that the kingdom of Christ had ended, that Jesus had been defeated. I mean, do you remember, like the Philistines who mocked God by placing Saul's armor in the Ashtaroth temple, the soldiers mocked Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews, they cried, as they spat upon him and struck him. They said he saved others, he cannot save himself. They mocked him and crucified him and buried him. And surely they would have thought, his kingdom is no more. And surely his followers would have wondered, what happened to the kingdom? And maybe 2,000 years later, we are wondering the same thing. And the answer, of course, friends is that the kingdom endures. We know that the anointed of God died and rose again, and he did so so that the kingdom of heaven would come. And so, friends, we need not wonder where is the kingdom or what has become of the kingdom because the story of 1 Samuel and the story of the scriptures and the story of the Lord's anointed, it doesn't end with the failing of King Saul. It continues with an enduring kingdom. And y'all, this gives us courage. It gives us hope. It gives us hope because presidents and princes, they will come and they will go. Nations and states, they will rise and they will fall, but our hope isn't in a president or a prince or a nation or a party. Our hope is in the king whose kingdom endures from now and forevermore. That is where our hope is. That is the story of 1 Samuel. That is the story of the scriptures that the Lord's anointed, that though Saul is dead and the kingdom is in turmoil, the Lord's anointed reigns. And so, friends, today and tomorrow and November 3rd and November 4th and all of our days, we have hope 
and confidence because we serve a king whose reign and whose kingdom is coming. His kingdom endures for all time. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that today in all of our days we follow you, our King who reigns and rules. Lord Jesus, you are the one who endured the cross. You scorned its shame. You were buried and you rose again and you ascended on high in triumph as our King. The one who sits on David's throne and who will come again. Your kingdom knows no end. And so we pray that until that day when you return, that you would help us to live as your kingdom subjects, that we would follow you and we would look to you and that we would submit our lives to you and we would live as ambassadors of the kingdom, the kingdom that endures forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said together, amen.